0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle and coming up on the program, we'll look at the new public history concentration being offered at Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach.
1: My dream job, I plan to be like in the Smithsonian uh, Museum. In the spring, we went to the Smithsonian Museum and it was like an awesome experience because it was amazing, all the material culture and things like that, it was awesome.
0: We'll
2: explore the history around the Apalachicola River. It's not the longest river; it's edged out by the St. Johns River on Florida's east coast. But uh, historically, it's a very significant watershed. And we'll discuss vanished Sanford. All that ahead on Florida
0: Frontiers. Lift every voice and sing. In 1904, Mary McLeod Bethune opened the Daytona Educational and Industrial Training School for Negro Girls. In 1923, the school merged with the Cookman Institute for Boys in Jacksonville and became Bethune-Cookman College in 1931. Known as Bethune-Cookman University in more recent years, the historically black school is now offering a public history concentration to augment the traditional history program. Dr. Anthony Dixon is University Archivist.
3: The basic difference in the two programs is the basic difference between the two disciplines as well. Our history degrees are more academic in nature, and they are um, centered upon research and primary sources and the interpretation of those primary sources. And then that interpretation, of course, uh, is normally goes out through books and articles and refereed articles. Public history is different. Public history takes that academic information, but it puts it in a form that can be used by the public. And so uh, what we do is take that information and we get it to the public in various forms, whether it's through museums and exhibits, or it is programming. And so our various projects and programs always involve the community. And that's the basic difference between public history and academia, is that public history is more concerned with how that information is going to be interpreted into the community and how the community is going to use that information for something positive.
0: While a traditional history degree can provide an excellent foundation for a variety of careers, Dixon wanted to add the public history concentration option to provide students with even more employment opportunities after college.
3: The first is the theoretical, in that uh, a lot of our uh, young people that come into the discipline or come into college and they look at history, they are immediately turned off because they don't think that there are other uh, professions other than just teaching. And so they think that uh, if they get a history degree, then they have to be a history teacher. And so we wanted to show them all of the different things that uh, goes along with history and how public history is actually the one that opens up the professional arena when dealing with history. And so uh, we wanted to expose them to that work. We have an archives upstairs that we use as a training in conjunction with the coursework. And we also have a museum component with the Bethune Foundation. So between the two, we actually also give them the practical experience as well. So theoretically, it was showing them the other jobs and opportunities that are out there in the history, the broader history field. And then the second is the, the practical, uh, showing them the jobs and then getting them trained and ready to take those positions.
0: Bethune-Cookman University has an illustrious past for history students to explore. Educator and civil rights activist Harry T. Moore, his wife Harriet, and their daughters Peaches and Evangeline all graduated from the college. Writer and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston ran the drama department for a year. Mary McLeod Bethune was a consultant to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and her home is now a museum on the BCU campus.
3: We try to include a practicum in most of our courses. And I'll give you two good examples. In our Florida history class, we split it in half. Um, the first half of the course, we lecture. Uh, we go through the general history of Florida. We go all the way through the beginning, all the way up. We usually get to about the 1960s, 1980s, somewhere in there. And then the second half is all about research and writing. And so we we encourage them to find a topic that demands primary sources, and so they have to come into the archives and they have to use the archives and they have to use the databases to the Florida State Library and different places to do this research. So we use uh, that Florida history course to strengthen them on the academia side by writing a solid piece on some aspect of Florida history, but also we give them the practical experience of going through and being able to uh, go into an archives and research for those primary sources. Uh, Another class is our public history class. Uh, Same setup. Uh, First half of the semester, we go through and we lecture and we go through the book and we uh, do the different theoretical aspects to public history. And then the last eight weeks of the course, they do about four weeks in the archives where they get general archival experience, initial processing. Uh, We don't normally get to cataloging, uh, but there are some instances in which they do a little bit and get exposure to cataloging as well. And then they spend time in the museum and they give tours and they deal uh, with some of the programming that we do as well as a little bit of the administrative work as well.
0: Elasia Basel is a history major from Broward County who will be the first student to graduate from Bethune-Cookman University as a history major with a concentration in public history. She started out as a biology major.
4: I ended up switching to history at first, but I had a class with Doctor Dixon and it was my African American history course and he found out I was a history major and he actually asked me he was you know, gave me some insight on what I could do with history. And as he said earlier, it was, I thought I could just, you know, be a teacher or just be a professor. But he explained the public history program to me and I was really interested. Um, I never thought of the route of being able to work in a museum or be in charge of preserving, you know, papers of the past from, you know, great leaders who have left a legacy behind. So that's kind of how I got into it.
0: Basel explains that she has had practical experience working in the Mary McLeod Bethune House Museum and the BCU Archive.
4: We've done a museum studies course here, and we were actually able to uh, have an exhibit on display in the house It's currently there. Um, Dr. Dixon actually, he gave us the tools to understand how exactly a museum works, the necessary steps that have to be taken, um, the process. Uh, We have a public history course that I'm currently in, so we're basically learning like, you know, the foundation of what actually happens when you're working in public history, the different types of, you know, um, museums, exhibits, And I also, I work here, I intern as well. He's also allowed me to intern. So I work in the archives and I also work in the house. So I'm giving tours. Um, I've actually helped catalog some of the projects here from past presidents as well.
0: Basel believes that her public history training is giving her a lot to offer a museum.
4: I would love to be a curator of a museum and or exhibitionist. Um, The idea of being in charge of how the community or how the public understands history is very exciting to me. I think that more people will be interested, especially me being younger. I understand like what people my age, what gets their attention. So I think I could possibly get a younger crowd involved in history and more museums, especially if it looks interesting as well.
0: Kendrick Roberts is originally from Miami and is also majoring in history at Bethune Cookman University with a concentration in public history. He's participating in an oral history project that is documenting the evolution of the once thriving Black business district in Daytona Beach.
1: When I first got to bethune cutman I would walk down uh, Second Avenue. Second Avenue is now Mary McLeod Boulevard, and I would walk down the street, and I would notice like it was like a lot of abandoned buildings. Dr. Ford, she asked me would I like to intern uh, this summer. I did the C.U.R.E. program, the Center for Undergraduate uh, Research Program. And we went over like a lot of oral histories and things like that, and it was like telling the story of Second Avenue and how it was like the center of Black life in Daytona Beach. And um, the oral histories was like amazing because they told the story of the neighborhood before urban renewal came.
0: Roberts has helped to document many changes in Daytona's Black business district.
1: The neighborhood has changed a lot. Over there on Second Avenue, we had the Rich Theater. That was the only Black theater here uh, in Daytona Beach. Uh, blacks was not allowed to. Uh, Cross Ridgewood. So the Rich Theater, it was located over there by 2nd uh, Avenue. And I have a quote here from uh, Tonya Jenkins uh, from one of the oral, oral history interviews. The vacant lot, that's where the uh, movie theater was, the Rich, But it's no longer there. If you, ri- if you ride down 2nd Avenue, it's just like an empty space.
0: Roberts hopes that the public history concentration in his history degree will open up exciting employment opportunities for him.
1: My dream job, I plan to be like in the Smithsonian uh, Museum in the spring. We went to the Smithsonian Museum, and it was like an awesome experience because it was amazing, all the material culture and things like that. It was awesome. So that was very interesting to me.
0: Dr. Jeanette Ford is Associate Professor of History at Bethune-Cookman University and has been with the school since 2001. She has initiated five major oral history projects, including the one focusing on Daytona's Black Business District.
5: During the early 1960s, the urban renewal came to Daytona Beach, and like other neighborhoods in Florida, Overtown and Progress Village in Tampa and other places, the thriving community somehow just fell apart, and the reason was that when people's homes were substandard, they were offered payment through eminent domain, and their homes were purchased and then usually raised and the people were allowed to live anywhere. And so according to one of the people who, who was on the committee for this, the idea of having open occupancy meant an end to segregation. And so despite the claims that never came true, that facet of it was deemed to be appropriate. But in the meantime, the 41 thriving businesses and doctor's offices, and all kinds of things. Their business dried up because the community sort of moved away, and it seems like the promises that were made to revitalize never quite happened. And so uh, as it is today, you see a lot of vacant properties, storefronts that are empty, and so on.
0: Students are involved in the gathering and transcribing of oral histories Valuable information is being gathered from people who experienced the civil rights movement firsthand, people who knew Mary McLeod Bethune, and many others. Ford says that the students are also getting practical experience.
5: They learn intergenerational communication. That's pretty key because although many students have good relationships with their elders, sometimes the level of communication is is not the same. You know, their grandparents aren't always on social media, etc and they also learn a great deal of content information and they learn to appreciate what others before them have done to bring them to this point, although many challenges remain.
0: In one class, Ford has her students interview members of their own families, which often turns up surprising results.
5: Some of the students don't realize what the depth of the participation their, their elders have. One student knew her grandfather was a police officer but really he was a detective, and really he was the lead detective in the Kimberly Leach murder that Ted Bundy was ultimately convicted of. Another student told about how a great-great, maybe great-grandfather had escaped. He was a sharecropper, got into an argument with his, the, the owner over the price of the commodity, and he took off and uh, ran and came all the way to Ormond Beach, Florida, and that's how her family came to live in this area there are innumerable stories that the students find out that they just you know in the past there's a lot of violence and a lot of ugliness and sometimes students don't wanna ask they don't wanna you know bring up these things but the way we do it uh, we follow the guidelines of the oral history association and always give the interviewees the questions and things in advance and the students research the questions and so they become I guess, emboldened to have these conversations and almost to a person, even though they sort of groan when they hear about it, in the end, they always seem to appreciate having done it.
0: The new public history concentration at Bethune-Cookman University is offered as part of the undergraduate history degree program. Efforts are underway to expand the public history option to the graduate level. Lift
5: every voice and sing
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to discover great books on Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Be sure to follow us on Facebook as well.
6: letter wine. Appalachicola, strong in mine, Apalachicola flowing fine, Lord, Apalachicola doing time.
0: Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we'll be talking about one of Florida's most important waterways.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. Today we're looking at the Apalachicola River, which is in the Florida Panhandle in northwest Florida, and it's a little under 200 miles within the the, uh, boundaries of the state of Florida. It's not the longest river. It's edged out by the St. Johns River on Florida's east coast, but uh, historically it's a very significant watershed. And going back long before Europeans came to Florida, there's evidence of indigenous groups, in fact, the Apalachicola Indians, where the river gets its name, lived along the watershed. And it was an important source of food and transportation. And of course, when Europeans arrived, the early Spanish conquistadors were certainly familiar with the river. But it wasn't until 1763, when the British actually took over, the Apalachicola River became the dividing line. It it runs fairly north-south, so it's a nice Uh, even divider between what would become East and West Florida. The British came in and they divided the territory into two separate colonies uh, divided by the Apalachicola River. West Florida stretched all the way to the Mississippi. And of course, East Florida went east to the uh, Atlantic Ocean. And into the 19th century, it became again an important route for early pioneers to transport both people and agricultural products in and out of Florida. But it's important to understand the Apalachicola River is part of a much larger watershed. as part of what they call the ACF the Apalachicola, Chattahoochee, and Flint River watershed. Now, the Chattahoochee and Flint Rivers are further north and at at their confluence uh, is right at the border with Florida and Georgia, and that's where the Apalachicola River begins. So they come together and they form what we call the Apalachicola River, Uh, but the headwaters stretch all the way up into northeast Georgia at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains and then flow through the state of Georgia and actually form part of the boundary of the states of Georgia and Alabama. Alabama and then come together at that confluence right at the border and then flow south again a little under 200 miles to the uh, to the Gulf of Mexico but it was very important as i said in the 19th century for transporting cotton to the Gulf of Mexico and remember that in the early part of the 19th century up through the civil war cotton was a very important part of the southern economy and part of florida's economy through the territorial period and into the early state period and the actually the first steamboats on the apalachicola river were running as early as the 1820s and prior to that period, they had flatboats that would flow down river but couldn't get back up river. So the steamboats subplanted that technology. And then soon after that, in the 1830s, Actually, the first steam locomotive line was running along the Apalachicola River. That was the Lake Wimico line in the 1830s. It was really kind of the center of Florida's economy in the middle Florida area during the, the beginnings of the, the statehood, late territorial and, and statehood periods. And then towards the latter part of the 19th century and into the 20th century, the uh, logging industry really took over and, and it be, again became a, a major thoroughfare for uh, logging operations coming out of parts of of. Georgia and and parts of the uh, northern Panhandle region out to the Gulf of Mexico, and then goods could be, of course, transported on larger steamers uh, all over the
0: world. Now, you have here some interesting items from the Florida Historical Society collection that show the history of the Apalachicola region, including a map from the early
2: 1800s. Yeah, what we're looking at is, I think, one of the most artistically interesting maps I think we have in the collection. The title of the map is A Plan of Lands in East Florida purchased by the John Forbes and Company from the Indians, and at the bottom here it says, supposed to contain 1.2 million acres. Now this is what we call, uh, refer to now as the Forbes Grant. John Forbes was part of a an Indian trading operation that existed in Spanish Florida from the late 19th century up into the, about the, the time of the War of 1812, when the company kind of disbanded, and they accrued a lot of these debts from the Seminole and Creek Indians, And as a way to absolve those debts, they ended up trading land. So this land purchase was the culmination of decades of of those debts. And again, it amounts to something like 1.2 million acres. But again, here see prominently in the left side of the map is the Apalachicola River. And this is one of the earliest surveys, one of the most detailed surveys we have of the Apalachicola River. And this was done sometime probably between 1805 and 1810. And again, it was an early survey to legitimize the the 1.2 million acre land purchase. But what's interesting about this map, we'll see these dotted lines that show Seminole Indian trails. We also have locations of what they're stating here are Indian villages. Uh, And this is very important for archaeologists today and for ethnographic researchers and historians to locate where a lot of these historic settlements were. And it also shows the historic flowage of the river, essentially, where where the river went in the early part of the 19th century. The river itself is famous for flooding. In fact, some of the other pieces that I pulled from the archive are postcards from the 1920s that show River Junction, which is now part of the town of Chattahoochee, uh, Florida, completely underwater. On the back of one of the postcards, they say the boat actually came into the drugstore when they were trying to buy the postcard. But that floodplain area, even though it was an annoyance for early settlers who set up their towns on the banks of the river, it's again very important for the biodiversity of the region. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase
0: is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
1: Apalachicola, let her whine
6: Apalachicola, strong in mind
5: Apalachicola, flowing fine, Lord Apalachicola, doing time
0: This is Florida Frontiers. Many historic towns are being surrounded by urban sprawl. Holly Baker is a public historian with the University of Central Florida and has this look at vanished Sanford.
7: The city of Sanford, Florida, near Orlando, has more than 20 buildings listed in the National Register of Historic Places. Most of the structures in historic Sanford were built between the late 1800s and the early 1920s. While many of the historic buildings in Sanford still remain, Others have been lost to demolition, fire, and collapse. To raise awareness about the importance of protecting historic buildings, Historic Preservation Officer Christine Dalton and Eddie Browder, landscape architect and project manager in Orlando, recently presented a program called Vanished Sanford for the Sanford Historical Society. During the event, they invited community members to share their memories of historic buildings in Sanford that no longer exist.
6: The idea is when people see the buildings that we've lost, it raises awareness to preserve what we still have. We invited people to share their stories of the buildings and that participation is important because I could stand up at a podium and talk to people about these buildings all day long, but without the memories and the stories associated to the buildings, they're just bricks and mortar. So with Vanna-Shamford, inviting people from the community to talk about their memories of these buildings that are no longer here is really why those buildings were special.
7: Christine Dalton talked with us about some of the structures that were discussed at the Vanish Sanford event, including the Sanford Bandshell, a popular civic space that was built in 1927 and was removed in the 1970s. The band shell was actually
6: pretty important because it was part of a waterfront redevelopment project when our city was transitioning from being an industrial waterfront to a real kind of pleasure waterfront. So the Bandshell was part of this beautification project of all of Seminole Boulevard. It created this civic public space for people to come and gather and enjoy the sunsets and enjoy a show or performance. Some of the people that shared their memories at the Vanished Stanford event talked about how, you know, they would take class photos there or the majorettes would take their photos every year there. And it was the importance of the shell is that it was this, Piece of architecture that really highlighted the transition of our waterfront from an industrial to a more scenic, tourism-focused waterfront. The Banshell served an important role as being a civic space for the community. So the events that were held out on the park over there, where the shell was, and you know the sunsets and all of that happened at the shell, the civic space that that Banshell created. You know, it was just truly became in our city, in our downtown, that was a gathering place.
7: At the Vanish Sanford event, the members of the audience also recalled the old Sanford City Hall, constructed in 1924.
6: The City Administration Building and our old police station were situated right about where our City Hall parking lot is now. And those two buildings were designed in the 1920s by master architect Elton Moten, who designed many of the landmark buildings in Sanford. The stories around the old City Hall were that it was so termite infested and so structurally unsound that it had to be demolished, and there was no other choice. And this was in a time period where it was the 1970s and the historic buildings were not really too highly revered. It was all about going modern. And uh, that was the reason that was given for tearing down City Hall. Well, locals can tell you that they observed the demolition of City Hall and that the building was hit with a wrecking ball for two days before the first wall came down. That building had pecky cypress throughout the building. It had very heavy heart pine beams. There was a lot of really fine architectural detailing in that building that we lost when it was demolished.
7: Some of the attendees at the Vanished Sanford event fondly recalled attending high school dances on the second floor of the City Hall building in the 1940s and 1950s.
6: That building also was a very special civic space because the upstairs served as the auditorium for the council meetings and any of the important public business of the city but the chairs were actually foldable and you can move them out of the space so it doubled as a ballroom. So the students from the high school would have dances up on the second floor of City Hall. The high school students dubbed it the celery crate because Sanford has such a rich history of the celery farms. So that room upstairs was actually the celery crate and that's where they had their dances.
7: Some Sanford residents at the Vanished Sanford event shared their memories of Seminole High School another building designed by distinguished architect, Elton Moten, that was located at 1700 South French Avenue. Christine Dalton. You know, with the school buildings
6: especially, these were places that people grew up. That's where their ideas were formed. That's where, you know, they just grew as people. And so going to those schools every day and walking those same halls and the architecture was absolutely beautiful of Seminole High School, the original Seminole High School, also constructed in the 1920s. But I think the audience, too, that we had that day were people who went to that school shortly before it was demolished. So I think there was also, you know, this kind of nostalgia of we were the last people who were lucky enough to experience going to school in the school building. And the shift to the modern day school building standards were were so distinctly different than those old school buildings that I think that kind of furthers the nostalgia. We were the last people who went through our education in a school building like this, as opposed to what we now have, the modern day classroom.
7: The nostalgia expressed for the vanished buildings of Sanford also brings attention to the importance of preserving existing historic structures so that communities can continue making memories in them for generations to come. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.